This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, can be found on page 983 in your pew Bibles. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors. I'm really glad to be here with all of you this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, we love you. Let's clap. Let's clap for our moms, right? Hey, I, I don't know of another vocation that is more like intense, demanding, potent, powerful, um, and also like completely overlooked as, as mothering. Like all of the work that you do all of the time, whether or not you are a full-time stay-at-home mom, whether or not you have a career, like you are always on and you are always pouring into other people and cultivating life in a way that is really unique. I think moms have a power to like bring forth life and speak power and authority into other people's lives that like uh, men and dads just don't, don't have uh, the same capacity to do. So what you do is amazing uh, and we are so thankful. Like I love watching uh, the flood of kids like streaming in and out of our church every single week and just all of the um, work that you guys do to love and care for um, all, of our, all of our kiddos. And, and uh, the, the thing also that is amazing about mothering, like it's not limited to biological children. Uh, in, in the church, there are mothers, spiritual mothers, um, and we need strong feminine leaders and presence who can cultivate life and speak into other people and draw forth uh, maturity that all of you women in the room have a really unique capacity to do. So um, we love you. We are so thankful for you. You deserve celebrating uh, every single day and every single week. And uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we set aside a day for you. So that's great. Um, and also, hey, I know uh, with all of that, uh, this is a complicated day also for a lot of people in the room. It's complicated because motherhood is so beautiful and is so powerful that when we don't experience it the way that it's supposed to be or when we're unable to have kids of our own or your relationship with your mom is not the way that it's supposed to be, it just like it hurts and it's really, really deep. Um, so for all of you who maybe feel um, an extra tension or sadness inside of your soul today, uh, the Lord loves you. 
you. And the Lord sees you, and we love you, and we are thankful for you. Um, so thank you, moms, for everything that you do. Um, we'll try to celebrate you more throughout the year. And be, everyone, be sure, to, if you have a mom in your life or a mother, a mother figure, you, sh- you can tell them more days than just today that they're amazing. Um, but tell them especially today. So, um, hey, with that, let's, uh, let, let me pray. Uh, then we are going to get back into our series in Colossians uh, and talk about these really packed, potent verses that we have. So uh, will, will you pray with me? Uh, Father, uh, I am thankful uh, for today. Thank you for the moms, the women in this church who uh, do so much that is so unseen. I pray that you would uh, reach every single uh, woman, mother in this room uh, this morning. Will you speak peace to them? Will you fill them with joy? Will you fill them with uh, your spirit? For those uh, in this room who are feeling like tired or burnt down or unseen, uh, will you breathe life back into them? Will you be really near to them in a way that um, is full of life and blessing? Uh, And for all of us who aren't uh, uh, moms, like, will you help us to celebrate and honor and affirm uh, the women and the mothers that we have in our life? Uh, And Jesus, like, uh, everything has to do with you. Um, mothering has to do with you. Uh, celebrating life is all about you. Um, so will you give us all the capacity to see you and to love you and to follow you today? Um, I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, a few years after C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, author, passed away, his friend, Owen Barfield, wrote a biography uh, about him and really about their friendship and their relationship. Uh, Owen Barfield was a fellow author, teacher uh, in Oxford, and he was part of a group of people who would get together called the Inklings. They would go to a pub, they would drink beer, and they would talk about life and philosophy and argue and debate, and it uh, lasted four years. And after Lewis passed away, Barfield uh, tried to explain and write about their relationship, their friendship uh, to other people. And one of the things that he said in trying to explain what it was like to be a friend with or talk with C.S. Lewis um, was, uh, this is what he said, somehow what he thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything, He had a way of communicating um, more than what the sum of the parts of the words that he was saying uh, communicated. There was depth, there was meaning, there were implications that was really, really unique. And when I read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I feel that same kind of thing. Like Paul is somehow smuggling what he thinks and believes about absolutely everything in the world into these six verses about Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's not a long passage, but inside of it, there is the whole story of the world, humanity, God, what's gone wrong, what God is doing to put it right? It is all right there. Um, And it is all about the absolute beauty, glory, majesty, and supremacy of Jesus. Paul wants us to know, wants us to see that everything in existence finds its meaning in Jesus. He is the point and the goal of absolutely everything. Um, And there's so much in these verses that we're going to take a couple weeks to talk through them. 
I'll kind of give a little bit of an overview this week, and then next week, Mark is going to spend some more time teasing out implications of if this is who Jesus is, if he actually is ruling and reigning over everything, giving us everything that we need, then what does that mean for the way that we live our lives? So that's the next couple weeks um, that we have together. Uh, For today, this is what I want you to remember. Everything that will happen to you today Everything that you have experienced in the past and everything that you will do in the future has to do with Jesus. You're never going to have a random experience that somehow has nothing to do with him. And I'm talking about loving another person. I'm talking about mountains. I'm talking about ice cream. I'm talking about sadness, emotions, joy, happiness, jobs, um, relationships, sunsets, death, sin, laughter, anything that you can think of, anything that you have experienced has to do with Jesus. If you want to put that theologically, Uh, Jesus is the source of absolutely everything in the world. He made it all. He made it all out of joy and happiness, and he is reigning supreme over everything. So whatever you do after you leave this place, whether it's celebrating mom, whether it's going and doing yard work, is deeply connected to Jesus, So if you are new with us, or if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, we are just a couple weeks into this series going through the New Testament book of Colossians. It was written by the Apostle Paul just a few decades after the life of Jesus, and it was written to a young, small church in a insignificant, small, out-of-the-way town in modern-day Turkey. We, we can see, if you, if you read uh, the context, if you were here uh, listening to the sermons we've preached before, this, this church loved Jesus. Like, they had had an authentic experience. They had received the gospel. Their lives were being changed and transformed. The gospel was going forward in their lives and in their church. But there seems to be something else going on uh, in the church that was trying to convince these people that they needed something more than Jesus. We don't know exactly what that message was. Maybe it had something to do with, yes, Jesus is good enough to get this thing started, but to really bring it to completion, you need this, or you need to do that, or you need to believe this kind of thing. And Paul's message in response to that idea is this powerful picture of who Jesus is. His goal in showing the church back then, Jesus, and our goal today uh, is to show that Jesus lacks nothing and has given us everything. There is no deficit in Jesus. There's nothing missing, and he has given us absolutely everything that we need. So these six verses read like a poem or a a hymn. It's possible that this was a song that was written and that they would sing in church services in the early church. Uh, It's full of loaded statements about Jesus, but has two kind of main sections or main points. The first one has to do with Jesus's supremacy over all of the universe, over all of creation, 
And the second point, the second thing that Paul wants us to see uh, in these verses has to do with his complete sufficiency for us. So Jesus is supreme over absolutely everything, and he is completely sufficient to give us everything that we need. So let's look at both of those points in order. If you close your Bibles, open them back up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and let's spend some time talking about Jesus's supremacy. And I'm going to read, uh, starting actually in verse 13 uh, and go, going through uh, verse 18. So in, in the context, everything that's come before, Paul is talking about what God, the Father, has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So immediately, Paul is pointing to this reality that in Christ, there is a new creation. There is a new way of living. All of us lived in darkness. We're familiar with what darkness feels like in the world and in our lives. That's because there is a real thing. There is a, like, evil is a real thing. Darkness is a real thing. We're all born into it, and we all need deliverance out of it. And Paul is saying, look, this is what God, through Jesus Christ, has done. He has taken us out of death and darkness, and he has brought us into life, into a new kind of living, into a new kind of kingdom that is not characterized by death, darkness, and decay, but light and life and joy. And then, because that's a pretty big statement, Paul wants us to see more clearly who this Jesus is who has given us redemption and forgiveness of sins and brought us into his kingdom. So he continues, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Pay attention to how many times all, every, all things pops up in this passage. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, why? That in everything he might be preeminent. This is a picture of one who is completely lifted up above everything, exalted, full of majesty, full of glory, full of power, completely supreme in the universe. And I struggled whether or not I should use that word supreme because I think it has a bad connotation like in our society, right? We're all pretty suspicious of uh, claims to power or descriptions of power or authority. Kara and I started watching this uh, show. Uh, it's like this sci-fi show that's about an evil empire that's ruining the galaxy and a rebellion that's trying to undo it. And somehow it's not Star Wars. Um, <laughs> But it's the same thing. And in this, the empire, the emperor, like he reigns supreme. He has all the power in the world. And if anything, well, not in the world, in the universe, because it's, it's sci-fi, it's a universe. There are lots of worlds. Um, and if anyone or anything gets in his way, what is he going to do? Well, he's just going to crush it. He's just going to stomp it out and make sure that he maintains his power. And so when I use the word like supreme, I think that there's something inside of us that has that kind of connotation. Like um, rule language just feels icky because we're free Americans, right? And no one can tell us what to do. Um, and 
we're just people that don't like anyone else to tell us what to do. Uh, here, here's the thing. Um, when we talk about the supremacy of Jesus, I think that we can think in those terms as if the supremacy of Jesus, the rule of God, is just some fact to be just like accepted. You just have to bear with it. You kind of just have to get in line. Jesus is supreme, so just do whatever he says. And here's the thing, like that's true. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is reigning over everything. What's the proper response? Well, it's, it's to get in line and to follow him. Like that's, that's the law. That's law that we see in the Bible. Jesus is worthy and has all rights and authority to demand allegiance in the world, but... He does not exercise that supremacy and that power in the way that we're used to, whether it's in a sci-fi show or it's in our everyday relationships when we're dealing with people in authority over us. The Bible talks about the rule of God, and when we're talking about the rule of Jesus, we're talking about the rule of God. It's the same thing. It's vibrant and full of life and full of joy and growth and light and flourishing. So when we talk about the supremacy of Jesus, it should feel way more like a drink of cold water on a hot day. It should feel way more like a really good meal when you are worn out and hungry. Like there is joy and there is um, new, like strength and nutrition in the reign of God. The way that this passage talks about the supremacy of Jesus is full of awe and joy and confidence and hope. So Paul begins by showing how Jesus is absolutely supreme uh, by, by talking about how he is supreme in all of creation. That's at the very beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And remember when I said that Paul somehow finds a way to work the entire story of the world into these few verses, this is, this is where it starts because when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's bringing us into a story that's already started. Where do you hear image of God language uh, in the Bible? It's in Genesis, right? When God creates the world, he creates everything in it. He fills it with life and flourishing. He fills it with animals. He fills it with birds. He fills it with trees and mountains. And then he creates humans in his image to steward and rule over this creation. They're supposed to go in and do the work of God in this new world. They represent him. They bring his presence. They bring his Peace. They bring his order everywhere into the world. So Paul is bringing us back into that story. It's, a, it's the original story of creation. The problem is that's all gone wrong. Humans had a job, had a vocation, and we've messed it up miserably. Instead of imaging God in um, self-sacrificial, loving, vibrant ways in the world, uh, we claim things for ourselves. We have become selfish. We try to get our own way or make our own way. We've given up the responsibility that comes with representing God in the world and traded it for our own image or our own reputation. We've corrupted and distorted this image of God. And yet, 
Here is Jesus coming into the world as the true image of God, the true representation of who God is. If you want to know what God looks like, because like you can't you can't you can't see a picture of God, right? But if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the clearest picture of what the God of the universe looks like, how he acts, how he thinks, how he feels. You see that in Jesus. But that's not all Paul, Paul is trying to say in these verses. He's not just saying Jesus is a true image, the true image of, of who God is. He is absolutely saying that. He's also saying, hey, if you want to know what humanity was designed to look like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to represent and image God in the world as a true, full, flourishing human, look at Jesus. In Christ, you see true, full, overwhelming divinity joined together with true, flourishing humanity. And Paul is pointing to all of that by saying he is the image of the invisible God. He's bringing us into a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Because this world is broken and all of our hopes for renewal in the world are found in Jesus. And so he goes on to say he's, he's not just the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation. Um, and some people have taken those two phrases together, image of God, firstborn of all creation, and they've said, well, Jesus was not actually God coming to earth. He's some kind of um, enlightened, elevated humanity. He unlocked the key to what people were supposed to be, um, and so God has made him like the firstborn. He's the first created uh, thing. It, that, that doesn't work uh, in, in, this, in this context, because if you look further in verse 16, it says, um, by him all things were created. So it has to be saying something different than Jesus is just like a superhuman or a super way to um, live your life. What is, so what, 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 is, what is going on? What, what is Paul saying? Um, I want to take a little detour to answer that question and just ask, what, what does the Bible mean when it talks about creation? Creation language is all through this passage, right? He created everything. Without him, uh, nothing was created. Creation is a really big deal, but what is that? We throw that word around a lot, and we can just mean, oh, man, I love being out in creation. I love seeing the mountains. I love seeing the flowers and the fields. Those are created things, but creation in the Bible is everything that is not God. Anything that is not God is something that is created, Uh, The earth, sun, stars, people, angels, demons, God through Jesus made it all. And it's not just that. It's not just that he made everything, uh, the, the, the text is saying. He also says Jesus is actively holding all of that together. That's in, that's in verse 17. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. So everything that you see, Everything that you will encounter in this life outside of God is completely dependent upon Jesus for its existence. What does that mean? I'm a, I'm compl- I'm a dependent creature. Like, if I stop breathing, I die. If I don't get water, I die. There are tons of things that I'm completely dependent on and take completely for granted um, every single day of my life. And the same is true for all of you. We are completely dependent on things outside of us to give us life. What Paul is saying is 
that that is true in an even deeper level. Like, you aren't just dependent on water, oxygen, air, food. You are dependent upon Jesus holding your life together. And not just you, absolutely everything that exists in all of the universe is completely dependent on Jesus to hold it together. What's the implication of that? Well, it means that the big, powerful, scary people and organizations in the world that think they're in charge and that we think are in charge, those are the thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities, are just as dependent upon God as anything else, as anything else. The same goes for any spiritual power in the world. There is no power that exists that is not completely dependent upon Jesus for its existence. Jesus made them. He upholds everything, which means he has complete authority over your exasperating boss who does not treat you fairly. That means that Jesus has complete authority over your strained, tense family relationships, the person in your family that you just feel like has you, you know, like you don't know why you act the way that you do around them. They don't ultimately define who you are. That means that the social movements, the political powers, the organizations, whatever seems to have the most influence and momentum in the world right now is completely dependent on Jesus. And he rules everything. He holds everything together which means that if you are in him, you are completely secure. Because what can anything do to you? Jesus rules over all of it. He made all of it. All of it is for him. He's distinct from it. He's not something that has been called into existence. He calls everything else into existence. So if Jesus made everything, if Jesus sustains everything, what does it mean when it says that he is the firstborn of creation? doesn't mean that he's the first thing created, like Jehovah's Witnesses will say. What it means is that everything is for him. The firstborn son in ancient society was the heir of everything. All that the father had was for the firstborn. It was going to go to him, and he was going to have authority over absolutely everything, which means that in some way, everything in the world was made for Jesus. Absolutely everything. This is a really physical passage. Uh, we, we, we have a tendency to split like our boring everyday lives uh, where we are dealing with groceries and bills and food and relationships from like the spiritual things in our life, like the prayer, the scripture reading, the, um, the uh, care, caring for other people. There's, that split does not exist in the Bible. This is a really physical passage passage, which means that following Jesus isn't something that is disconnected from your physical, everyday life. If everything is for him, that means discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to grow in Christ, is not just, hey, I need to get a mentor, I need to get someone who's older and wiser than me to tell me what to do, or I need to pray, or I need to read my Bible. All those things are great. You should all do that. It means including absolutely everything in your life, um, bringing it all in submission to Jesus. Listen to how the philosopher Dallas Willard describes it. Willard says, as a disciple, 
I'm not necessarily learning how to do special religious things, either as a part of full-time service or as a part of part-time service. My discipleship to Jesus is, within clearly definable limits, he's a philosopher, so he's going to qualify everything, right? Um, Is, within clearly definable limits, not a matter of what I do, but how I do it. It covers everything, religious or not. Our growth doesn't depend upon changing our works but in doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. What does that mean? How does that work out? That means you can eat ice cream for the sake of Jesus. Eating ice cream is deeply connected to your discipleship. So what's the application for today? Go buy some ice cream and eat it for the glory of God. What does that mean? When, like, when we experience things that are really good in this world. Like, that tells us something about who God is. If Jesus made everything, that means that he made a world in which you can combine sugar and cream and cold and somehow, like, make this magical food that is delicious. And so when you can eat it, it's telling you something about who God is. Oh, God delights in creativity. God delights to bring goodness and flavor and joy everywhere he goes in the world. That means discipleship is connected to the way that you do yard work. Like as you are out there trimming weeds and like pulling up roots and all this stuff, you're participating in God's work of bringing order to chaos. Like that's what God does. He brings and cultivates new life. He plants things. He brings them forth so you can garden and do yard work to the glory of God for the sake of God. What's our problem? Well, we do the thing that uh, Willard is talking about. Uh, We do the things that we ought to do for God's sake that find it's like full, complete expression in doing it with God for God. And we just do it for ourselves. So we eat ice cream to like numb our emotions and feelings and like, you know, say, okay, well, you know, everything over here is awful, but I'm just going to eat my feelings in this um, bowl, bowl of ice cream. Or we just obsess over trying to make sure that our yard looks better than our neighbor's yard or say, well, I have to have everything in order here because that means that I'm going to be okay, which that's an exhausting way of living. That's idolatry, right? That's what sin does. We take good things and direct it completely back to us when you find the full, beautiful expression in Jesus, the world's deep fracture, the reason why so many themes, things seem to be wrong so often is because we place ourselves in the place of Jesus. We're wondering, hey, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this? We take for ourselves what rightly belongs to God, which, friends, is what sin looks like. It's what sin is, and it's why this world is in need of renewal. And thanks be to God, that is exactly what God is doing through Jesus. He is remaking and renewing everything that we've corrupted and twisted and like used for our own ends. And so Paul is going to continue by showing, hey, Jesus is not just supreme in all of creation. Jesus is supreme in the church, which is the place of new creation. Look down at verse 18. So this one who made everything, who's holding everything together, the firstborn, everything is for him. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, 
he might be preeminent. So right away, we see this firstborn language again. Only this time, Jesus is not the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Paul uses this language in a lot of other places in the New Testament. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is not just a cool, happy ending on the back end of the cross and the crucifixion. Oh, guys, great. Guys, good news. Jesus is alive again. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new kind of creation and existence where God is putting everything right again. And so for Jesus to be the firstborn from the dead means that he's the first one who has gone through death, who has conquered death, who has overthrown it and gone out on the other side into a new kind of creation. And everyone who is in him has the same future to look forward to. Resurrection is your future if you're in Jesus. New creation, renewed life in humanity is your future if you are in Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. The place where that is growing most fully right now is in the church, which seems like a really silly thing to say. Because if you look at the church throughout history, we're a mess. Like, we do not look like new creation very often. Like, the, the, the silly, like, conflict and petty games are really present. Not just, like, in our church, although it, it is here. It has been here. Um, that's, like, our story throughout all time. We fumble and fail and mess up, and yet... It says that Jesus is the head of this new people who is creating and bringing new resurrection in this place, which means that when we gather together, we're not just checking something off the list. We're not just saying, oh, that's cool. We're going to make new friends. We actually get to live like all of this is true. We actually get to live as participants of new creation. Like, it's not here all the way yet. Like, there's still all sorts of areas where things are broken and falling apart and in need of renewal. And yet, we are the resurrection people of God who get to partner with him in the life that he is bringing into the world. And so if Jesus is completely supreme over all of creation, if he's bringing his life and his joy into the world, if he's starting here, that means that he has everything that we need. Do you see the connection between the supremacy, the good news of the rule and reign of this Jesus and how that means we have everything that we need in him? He is completely sufficient. And we see that in two ways in verses 19 through 20. Let me read these verses again. Colossians 1, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So remember... The reason Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians is because there was some group or some person who was trying to convince the church that they needed more, that Jesus isn't actually enough. You need something else to protect you, to satisfy you. You need something more. And this word fullness that you see in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that word pops up a few more times throughout the book of Colossians. And so there was probably something that these people were saying about fullness. Hey, your life does not feel complete right now. 
you feel like you need something more, well, I'll tell you how to get fullness in your life. That is um, satisfaction, that is uh, fulfillment, that is having everything that you need. I'll tell you how to get fullness. All you need to do is listen to me or do these things or practice that or cut off that relationship or give me some money so I can continue to work on and then you'll have all the fullness that you were ever wanting. And we, 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 we like have the same messages at us today, like just, just watch TV. Every single commercial is designed to tell you how you can get the fullness that you're missing right now. We all know that there's something more. And Paul is saying, hey, do you wanna know where fullness is? It's in Jesus. Jesus is completely sufficient because he brings the fullness of God to us. This verse 19 is pointing us to the incarnation that in Jesus, you don't just see a teacher or a good man. You see a a, a man where all the fullness of who God is, is dwelling. And he came to dwell with us, which means that the fullness, all of who God is, is accessible to us through Jesus. And we see something um, really important about God uh, in this verse in 19. Look, all the fullness of God was what? Annoyed to to dwell in Jesus? Frustrated? Resigned to? No, it was pleased to dwell. And that word pleased is like a really weak translation. It, It should be more like overjoyed bubbling with happiness to dwell in Jesus. We can tend to split God the Father from Jesus the Son and think, well, Jesus is the one who you know, brings love. Jesus is the one who saves us. And then God is the angry one who's like always pointing out what's wrong with us and you know, showing us how we fall short. There is no split between God the Father and Jesus. God is overjoyed to share all of who he is with us in Jesus. God is overjoyed not to hold anything back of who he is from us. He is overjoyed to dwell with us and to give us everything that we need. There is not a single thing that he has withheld from us, which means that he's enough. If you have him, you have all the fullness of this God who made absolutely everything. So Jesus is sufficient as God with us, bringing us the full, the, like the fullness of all who God is. And Jesus is also sufficient, this passage will end, in his work for us. He's gonna end by pointing us to the cross of Jesus in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has done what no one else has been able to do. He's brought peace between God and humanity. And this this verse is doing something really subversive that we can tend to miss because we live 2,000 years after it was written. Uh, But for the first people who were reading it, this this was a really subversive verse because... um, it's using language that Rome used to talk about how Rome rules. What do I mean by that? Um, you guys probably learned about Pax Romana at some point, like in high school, college. Uh, Rome as an empire was committed to bringing peace to the entire world. 
Why should you accept the rule of Rome? Well, because we're bringing peace, this Pax Romana. Things are better when Rome is in charge. The problem is, how does Rome achieve this peace? Well, they achieve it through, through a cross, through a lot of crosses. Like you get rid of the problems by crucifying them. And if you can crucify enough people and get rid of enough problems, well, then everyone else is just going to settle down and not make much of a fuss. And so you have this peace, which is really superficial and not really a peace at all. It's just an overt absence of conflict. Anytime conflict does pop up, they're going to crush it. And you do it by bringing justice, by bringing might, by bringing like the iron fist to everyone who is wrong. How does Jesus bring peace? Well, he doesn't bring peace like that. He doesn't bring peace by coming and getting rid of all the people who are wrong or smashing all the people who cause a fuss or make mistakes. Thank God, because that's all of us. He does that through the blood of a cross, through the blood of his cross. Jesus brings real peace and flourishing and reconciliation not by killing his enemies, but by stepping in his enemy's place and taking the punishment for all the chaos and all of the darkness that we've created upon himself. And if he's the one who can cre- who's created everything, if he's the one who is full of light and life and joy, then when he does that, he actually undoes and breaks the power of sin and death fully and finally. Jesus does not rule through an iron fist and crushing his enemies. Jesus establishes his reign through his own blood, through his own sacrifice, which means that at the core of the way that Jesus rules and reigns, at the core of how everything is about him, is a cross, is the love of God manifested for us, taking our place, taking all of our sin upon himself and bringing new light and life and joy and a way of living. So by showing us this Jesus who reigns over everything, who has everything that we need, who hasn't withheld anything from us, what's the message? What's the application? Let's hold, let's hold fast to him. Like he, he, you are not lacking in anything if you have Jesus. What you need is more of him. What you need is to figure out how to eat ice cream to the glory of God, right? And we can all do that. We can at least practice it. That sounds great. (laughs) Holding fast to him, saying, oh man, like this sun that's out there today, the warmth, the life it's bringing is for Jesus. It's showing us something about who he is and how he reigns over us. Celebrating mom is for Jesus because it's a beautiful thing when mothers mother. That's the way that God set up the world. And so we love our moms and we honor them for the glory of God. And we say, oh, this tells us something about who God is. He cares. He cultivates. He nourishes. He gives us gifts. He is always with us. He is patient. He is long-suffering. And so if we can get, get to a place where we say, oh, all of this that I'm doing today is about Jesus, and I find myself most fully alive when I'm with him, that's when growth, that's when discipleship really starts to happen. And a way that we can end our service um, celebrating that is by coming to the table and taking communion. Because in communion, in this um, 
thing that we do together every single week, we're saying that all of that is true. That Jesus has given us everything that we need through his blood. That he's reigning over everything. That he is providing for us. He is making peace. He is bringing resurrection. And in all the places where we don't feel that right now, like in all the places where today feels hard and we're still sad, like sadness um, and brokenness doesn't have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Resurrection has the final word. So if you believe that, then come to his table and eat this meal. Remember, Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you. That's how he makes peace. That's how he brings his kingdom into the world. Not by making you pay for it, but by paying for everything and then inviting you to his table. The way that we practice communion here at Redeemer is we'll have a few stations um, where we'll have bread, wine, and juice. Uh, The uh, wine is in the stone. The juice is in the glass. Uh, You'll tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, uh, and the servers will will remind you this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus, his new covenant poured out on your behalf. We also have a gluten-free single-serve station that's gonna be off here to the side if you'd rather participate that way. Um, if you are not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. Don't take uh, communion. Um, it's, it, you know, if, if you're not placing your faith in Jesus, like it's literally just bread from Hy-Vee. Um, take Jesus. Like we have prayers uh, in the front of the pew who, that, that you can pray. We have people who are gonna be over here who would love to pray for you. If any of you need prayer uh, today, please come. We would love to pray for you to talk about whatever it is that is going on in your life, whether that's one of the pastors, the person in the pew, or someone over here. We would love to pray for you. Um, so I, I'm, I'm gonna end by praying. I'm gonna invite the band communion service to come back up, uh, and then we'll close out our time together uh, by remembering the Lord's Supper. So will you, will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, we're, we're thankful. We're grateful. Like on this day that we do get to um, celebrate moms and think about all the life and beauty that, that they bring, like um, you're working in the middle of all of that. You're working everywhere and, and you're really good at what you do. So Father, in places where... Um, relationships feel strained or broken or where my brothers or sisters just feel like tired or angry or uncertain, um, will you meet us? Will you give us yourself? We need more of you. We need you to teach us and um, bring us back to you. And so Jesus, will you do that through your spirit, through your people, through your word? Make us like you, make us a resurrection people. So Jesus, I pray all of this in your name. Spirit of God, will you do work in this place? Amen.